Welcome to All Things Green. I'm Shelby, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. My friend and colleague, Ashley King, is the Director of Housing Stability at United Way of Greater Cleveland, where I'm lucky to work alongside her. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. We've been talking about this for a long time. You're one of the initial supporters of the pod, so (laughs) I'm really excited to get to have this conversation with you on air. Let's start by telling everyone all the great things I already know, or maybe things I don't know. Tell us about yourself. Let's start with just where you're from. Um, so I'm actually from Shaker Heights, mm-hmm. which is a eastern suburb from the city of Cleveland, but now I reside in South Euclid. So Shaker Heights, that has been in the media in a few different ways. I think most famously in the book Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. I've read that one. And then also more recently in a nonfiction book that I read called Dreamtown by Laura Meckler, a Washington Post reporter. That one's nonfiction. First of all, have you read either one? And then if you have, how do you think your lived experience compares to what the average person might think about Shaker Heights? I have read Little Fires Everywhere, and I loved it. I didn't see the Hulu series, but um, I have Dreamtown on my reading list. But I do believe that my lived experience in Shaker would significantly differ from how other people think about Shaker. Um, So growing up in Shaker, we we rented and we experienced uh, an assortment of the rental housing conditions and multifamily units. So the housing conditions, they they weren't terrible, they weren't horrible homes, but if there was ever a problem such as, you know, a, a tenant dispute with another tenant, you know, water in the basement, rodents in the home, leaky faucet, insulation issues, things like that, they were only addressed if there was an up and coming rental inspection or if um, you know the lease was up and my mom decided just to not renew. Mm-hmm. But even with that, I, I loved living in Shaker. <laughs> um, <laughs> I talk about it quite frequently um, because it's a really wonderful place to grow up. I, I've lived in an assortment of different neighborhoods, the Lomond neighborhood, Gridley Park, Winslow, Onaway. I was able to walk to my elementary school, mm-hmm. ride my bike to the library, hike and bicycle jungle. Um, I rode the rapid frequently to Shaker Square and to Tower City, and um, I was even able to like, make friends with my neighbors, get like ice cream with my family, and I was actually able to walk to my part-time job at CVS from my house. So it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. It sounds really idyllic. I know that not everything was perfect, but the way you describe it, but maybe it's also because I'm just picturing tiny Ashley and that's just like so cute in my brain. With my little legs. Yeah, yeah. Of course, your little tiny legs, you're a very short person. Um, <laughs> so some of the things you shared, you know, walking to your job, taking the rapid, walking to school, it sounds like you were pretty organically making some environmentally friendly decisions just based on the environment you lived in and your family circumstances. Um, would you say that that's true? Definitely, yes. And it it actually paid off in a lot of interesting ways. So an interesting tidbit, me and some friends, me and my sister and some friends in high school, we took the rapid down to Shaker Square, and we actually saw and partially met R&B singer Avant. Whoa! And his bodyguards. They were there. They were like, don't get too close. Mm. Um, But then also... Um, because there was so much transit options in Shaker, I didn't really need to get my driver's license until I was 20 and had already moved out of Shaker um, because I could always ride my bike or, or walk. There was, you know, the rapid and like other transit busing options. So it was never something that I needed until I got out of Shaker and I said, oh, I need a car. Yeah. I need to drive. Yeah. <laughs> Not all of Northeast Ohio is just walkable friendly. Right. <laughs> Whereas by the time I was 16, I was in like an exurb kind of place. It was like, you better get a driver's license or you can't see your friends. Um, 
<laughs> so what else do you think that people should know about you? What do you want to share with us? One of my favorite things to share about myself is that I have three cats mm-hmm. who are triplets. They're from the same litter. Mm-hmm. I adopted them when they were three months old and they are, they are quite a handful, um, but they're very joyful. And also during the COVID lockdown, I actually started um, participating in a community garden in walking distance from my house. And I've grown my own um, collard greens, kale, uh, peppers, tomatoes, zucchini for my infamous zucchini bread. And um, whoa, whoa, if it's infamous, how come I haven't had it yet? Come on. <laughs> it is just now the fall. Oh, okay, fair yes. enough. Fair enough. I'll let you go. I like on this to one. sneak in some veggies. But yeah, I'll, I won't tell anyone else it's zucchini bread, but I'll bring it to the office. Okay, great. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how did you decide what you were going to grow in your garden? Honestly, I just thought of the things that I buy the most from the grocery store, and it's those things. Mm-hmm. I actually don't really like tomatoes, but mm-hmm. I, I grow them to make like a tomato confit, like a tomato jam, mm-hmm. and I put it on toast and just like build things on top of it. But for the the hearty greens, I each year for Thanksgiving make them, and I said, wouldn't it be nice to grow them and then cook them? And when everyone loves them, say, I literally made that. <laughs> <laughs> and now you can. Mm-hmm. So that's my fear if wanting to get into gardening is that everyone says to start with something easy like tomatoes. And I also don't love tomatoes. I like things with tomatoes in them, but right. I don't want to just bite into a summer tomato the way that my grandpa used to. And so now I feel more confident that if you come over, maybe I can grow zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> It is a process, but it's fun. It's very fun. (laughs) A process we can take on together. Mm -hmm. And we know each other pretty well. I'm learning some things already today that I didn't know. But I also don't think that you set out to do housing when you went out to school. So can you tell us about your career pathway and then sort of where you got interested in housing? It's... It's a very interesting path. So I actually, you're completely correct. I started off as a marketing major (laughs) and then I switched over to communications. And then from there, once I finished up my bachelor's degree, I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I just didn't know for what. And one night I was watching HGTV renovation show and one of the like remodelers were talking about like the economic impact of the home renovations they were doing for the street and the neighborhood. And I said, wait, is that a job? (laughs) And so then I went to Google and then I ended up on the Cleveland State University's Levin School graduate page. And then I enrolled in um, the urban planning school, which was, it was phenomenal. I met a lot of great people and I learned a lot about housing, the infrastructure, the, the systematic issues regarding housing. But as I neared graduation, I just, I felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, while working in grad school and even prior, I was working in, you know, doctor's offices and within the local hospital facilities. And I really just said to myself, I would love to learn about, you know, urban health, especially in Cleveland. So I went to my um, advisor at the university and she pointed me in the direction of the, um, education school for like Mm -hmm. community health promotion and then jumped right into that graduate program after the first one. Yeah, because you weren't doing enough. I wasn't busy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then um, from there, when I finished that program, I felt that I had a complete set of knowledge of regarding like urbanity, urban politics, and then urban health and disparities to really equip me to go out into the career path I wanted to specifically regarding community health and urban health, mm-hmm. which in the city of Cleveland and cities like legacy cities like Cleveland, I feel is really effective and prominent. 
and not just because we have all of these amazing world-class hospitals. Yeah. And so you go through grad school and then also grad school. Did I get all that? Grad school and then grad school? Double grad schools. Yeah. <laughs> and then you you come out of that and you do what? Sort of how do you get from grad school to grad school to getting to be my, my colleague and friend? Yes. Um, so from after grad school, I think I at least thought, you know, things are just going to fall into my lap. People are going to be banging down my door, like, come on down. I thought the same thing. <laughs> right? And it, that was not the situation. Um, so it took a lot of time, and then I, I did end up working in municipal government in specifically housing and um, economic development, which was really eye-opening and educational. Um, and then from there, I worked in some project management for the local tourism bureau, and then I worked for a social service and affordable housing provider specifically on um, a program and project relating to urban health and housing. Um, and through the connection of that employer, I came to United Way, Good full circle me. moment, yes, um, to become the director of housing stability, which touches on a lot of my interest and passions, which is to help people. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your work at United Way as the director of housing stability. What are some of the things that you're working on or the priorities that you're seeing in Cleveland? So the biggest priority, the overarching priority of my position would be to focus on programs, projects, and initiatives that promote housing stability in the greater Cleveland area. So some of the projects that I'm working on would be Let's Save Cleveland, Right to Council Cleveland, Scholar House Cleveland, and a Family Stability Initiative. And these projects are just an example of the types of projects that can um, work to increase family um, housing stability within the area, but then also to work to undo the systematic impacts of redlining. Yes. And I want to say that we'll go back into more detail about those programs later, but let's start with a little history lesson for everyone. So you just mentioned redlining. We mm -hmm. hear this word a lot, but for anyone who doesn't know, or maybe people who think they know, can you tell us more about what redlining really is? Yes. And that's a very good point. A lot of people, it's a it's a tag word, people hear it a lot. Yeah. Um, but per the Cornell Law School definition, redlining is a discriminatory practice that consists of systematic denial of services. So that's you know mortgages, insurance loans, things of that nature, to residents in a certain area based upon their race or ethnicity. Um, however, the, the part that I feel people miss in that definition is redlining also includes the withholding of important and essential services such as construction of grocery stores, supermarkets, healthcare facilities, healthcare services, and also the infrastructure of a neighborhood mm -hmm. such as roads, trash, water, sewer, things of that nature. Got it. So not only were certain people kept out of neighborhoods because they weren't granted loans in those neighborhoods, but also they weren't in communities where investments were being made. And just to be really clear about that, we're talking about white families who were able to get mortgages and therefore build family wealth in the housing market and then people of color who were denied, not just mortgages, but also services in the neighborhoods that we decided were going to be suited for, for BIPOC families. Exactly. And it, it really, it also links into, you know, the great white flight of you have these white families that are able to get these uh, financial services to build into the suburbs and the exurbs, And then the communities in which they left, there's a significant wave of disinvestment, which then, um, prohibits or does not allow for those families that remain to build that generational wealth through home ownership. Right. 
That's pretty horrible, but let's talk about what that looks like today because that redlining as a practice was legally enshrined for a period of time and now it's more, per my understanding, historic threads from that. So what can you tell us about the impacts today from redlining practices in history? So today, um, that's a fantastic question. It it really looks like um, seeing how that neighborhood disinvestment and that racial inequality of home ownership affects present day housing stock. So environmental impacts would be um, still affecting those low income communities and residents of color through the form of deteriorating housing conditions, specifically rental housing, um, lead exposure and poisoning, poor air quality, and increased of an increased risk of poor health outcomes such as diabetes, mortality, heart disease and obesity, and um, many public housing complexes were actually built near industrial areas. Mm -hmm. So that directly affects the air quality that residents who live there and even those who visit that they're taking in. That increases their risk of asthma and other respiratory conditions. And homes built before 1978, which is the year that lead-based paint was outlawed, they are in poor or deteriorating condition. They have a significantly higher increase increased risk of exposing small children and even adults to lead paint exposure mm -hmm. and lead paint poisoning. So poisoning obviously sounds like a bad thing, but can you tell us why, like what, what does lead paint mean for my health? What does the poisoning look like when it comes to lead? So specifically for small children, because it's, it's in subsets, but for mm -hmm. small children, what it does, since they are still growing and developing, if they are exposed or unfortunately poisoned due to lead paint or mm -hmm. lead dust, it significantly stunts their mental and physical development, which in the long term can lead to um, a large overview of health conditions. So it could be, you know, learning um, deficiencies, behavioral deficiencies, things that we see regarding um, like like rage or temper or impulse yeah. control. It it really is a a domino effect that affects children. Um, when they're at that crawling age, that toddler yes. age. And um, there are a lot of systems in place and um, organizations in place that are working to um, provide resources for that. And that includes your work. So we hinted that we would come back to it. So let's let's do that now. We talked about some of the projects that you manage or support at United Way. Let's go into more detail. Maybe we can start with Lead Safe Cleveland since we're already talking about lead. We're already there. Yeah. Uh, so Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition is a coalition of over 600 organizations, which is gigantic and phenomenal. Um, and they all collectively have the same goal of ensuring that no child in the city of Cleveland is poisoned by lead. Mm -hmm. And um, through the coalition, property owners are offered financial and construction management assistance in addition to um, actual education on lead safety and um, workforce development and training on how to um, mitigate and um, deal with lead hazards in mm -hmm. their property to ensure and help make their properties lead safe. So this lead safe model is a proven and effective model to reduce lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. And um, this model has actually been, it's used in Cleveland, but it's from a Rochester model mm -hmm. and a couple of other cities models that have um, utilized this and seen very effective goals over the course of 10 to 15 years. That's awesome. So it sounds like we've got some things happening. Yes. Working against uh, lead mitigation, lead, lead poisoning prevention in the city. But you also talked about a couple of other things. Let's go to Right to Council. What's Right yes. to Council? So Right to Council Cleveland is another national model 
Um, it gives uh, eligible low-income Cleveland tenants free legal representation in eviction hearings in Cleveland Housing Court. So this is allowing for those tenants that may be, you know, marginalized or vulnerable communities, resources so that when when and if they are in eviction court, that they have representation. They know their rights and they have someone advocating for them because you generally will have the property owner who has that legal representation. Mm -hmm. What are some of the reasons that people might want to reach out to a right to counsel? Like, is that exclusively because I'm facing eviction or could it be about my housing quality? Great question. Um, It's a combination of both. So What I do enjoy a lot about Right to Counsel Cleveland is that, you know, the the front door of it is unfortunately an eviction filing. Mm -hmm. However, with that, it comes with an assortment of education of, you know, what to do with your property or with your uh, monthly rent if you do have housing conditions that are of an issue. Mm -hmm. They try to educate tenants regarding putting your rent in escrow and how to navigate the court system and how to, even if your home conditions aren't of a higher quality, how to stay in alignment with your your lease agreement with your landlord. Yeah, which to me, again, this isn't my area of expertise, but sort of goes back to this idea of discrimination that, to use your phrase, domino effects over time. And Mm -hmm. so maybe I don't want to pay my rent because my landlord isn't keeping it in a way that is safe for me. And we can think about that environmentally because that's sort of our focus here, but it could be lots of things, mold that can cause asthma, lead that can cause a variety of issues down the line. So Mm -hmm. it's very important work that you're doing. I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Let's, Let's talk about the Seamer Family Stability Initiative. I know that I sit three chairs away from you. And I sort of knew these first two, but this is the one that I feel the least like I understand what what United Way is doing, what you're doing with this. Fantastic. Yes. Um, So the Seymour Family Stability Initiative, it's a financial assistance and coaching assistance Mm -hmm. program that is um, aimed to assist low-income families that encounter some type of crisis that could put them at risk of being housing unstable or even for the children or child in the home, school unstable. Mm. So it's a two-generational model and approach that focuses on ensuring that families stay in homes and that children stay enrolled in school. Mm, that That's important. That feels crucial because yeah. we're trying to build these building blocks rather than domino effects, yeah. building blocks for success. <laughs> build them up. Don't, don't knock them down. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And I think there's one more, which is yes. Scholar House. If you could tell us a little about that too. Yes. Scholar House Cleveland, I'm going to say it again, is another national model <laughs> um, that has been very effective um, to provide affordable housing and wraparound services to low-income college students and their children. Mm. This helps to support their educational success and promote their economic mobility. So it is a, um, a structure, families live in the structure, the apartment complex, and the apartment complex provides on-site childcare, connection with resources, financial coaching and counseling to help build them up economically and also to guide them through the process of being enrolled in school. That's wonderful. You're doing a lot of really good work. And obviously, we'd, we'd love to keep tracking the outcomes of all of these programs and hoping that we do see those building blocks, yeah. building up communities and people who live in them. What are some of the things that you also see in the housing space that you feel could be relevant to environmental health outcomes, whether United Way is working on them or not, um, or some of those disparities that we see because of the historic disenfranchisement? Yes. So it, it may be an unpopular opinion, but I am a big fan of tiny homes <laughs> in modular homes. I think um, it's really important within the housing landscape to identify 
the need to have different types of housing stock and housing options out there besides a traditional single family home, apartment complex, uh, townhome. Um, having a variety of housing stock options can provide some resources to get us to housing stability and working on the displacement of individuals. Yeah. And also, like environmentally speaking, it literally saves room, or at least it can. <laughs> I guess it depends on where you put your tiny house and mm-hmm. use what you need. I'm not saying that everyone has to have a tiny house. I live in a single family house, but yes. I live on a teeny tiny little property with lots of other houses that are close to me. But I like the idea that you're talking about giving people options. Yes. This intersection between housing stability, which is what you're going for, but then also the environmental impact, both on our environment for the sake of the environment itself, Mm -hmm. but also healthier environments for the people who live in them. Yes. I'm a fan of tiny houses, at least as a a theory. I don't think I've ever really been in one. I have never been in one, and I know that it could not work for me. Sure. But I also feel like there are people who would very much thrive in one. Sure. You know, they have a a small footprint. They maybe do some camping outside, and it, you know, it could be mobile, whatever works for them. Absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, my grandfather lived in a trailer, and so I've been in trailers before. And Mm -hmm. a lot of tiny homes are decked out trailers. And that is a whole different conversation about how we talk about (laughs) what rich people do when they want to live in small spaces versus just someone who lives in small spaces because that's what their income allows. But Mm -hmm. I don't want to take us too far off track. (laughs) I also think that it would come to some public policy decisions about where we are allowed to zone for different kinds of living, right? Yes, it's it's definitely um, something that people should think about, and it does provide me with a recommendation of those who are interested in discussing um, or learning about redlining further or even zoning. Mm-hmm. The book, The Color of Law, um, is, is a pretty fantastic book. It's very good to read through and through, to do a deep dive, but also just to skip around depending on your interest level. Yeah, that's a great one. I loved it. And we'll link that and all the other books that we've talked about and programs in the show notes. People can find them. So there's lots of ways that we've already talked about people um, who want to get involved. They can look more into the programs that United Way supports, the programs that you support. Most of those are United Way partnered with lots of other organizations, just to be clear. Um, But then also we talked about some books people can read. What about someone who might be experiencing issues related to housing stability or quality? Where would you recommend someone go if they need help? There are a large amount of resources within the greater Cleveland area. So my recommendation always is for someone to call 211. Mm -hmm. So 211 is a free community service to obtain information about social, health, housing, and government services. It's open 24-7, 365. The number is literally 211. Mm -hmm. And you are connected with um, a specialist who can guide you through programs and resources that you could be eligible for and connecting you with those organizations. Absolutely. And that's anonymous, right? So I don't have to tell anybody who I am. Right. Completely anonymous. We have uh, United Way of Greater Cleveland, where we work, runs the one locally here in Cuyahoga County and a couple of other counties in Ohio. So we'll link the Ohio one in the show notes, but there are 211s all over the country, right? Yes. So you can call 211 from wherever you are, and you are highly likely to be covered by 211 in your area. Well, Ashley, this has been so great. So why don't we uh, tell the viewers how they can keep up to date with our show and other resources that you might recommend? If you'd like to stay connected to us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at One Planet Media. That's O-N-E-1. And if you'd like to rewatch full episodes, check out our YouTube channel, All Things Green Show. You can find all of our sources from today's episode in our show notes. Ashley, do you have any organizations you'd like to plug? 
Both the Cuyahoga County Public Library and Cleveland Public Library Systems, they provide great author speaker series, consistent programming for children and teens, and is one of the places I love riding my bike to. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show with me, Ashley. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thank you for being a part of the global sustainability movement. Mm-hmm.